An unobtrusive envelope was lying on Gary Roberts's desk when he arrived at work. He spent a bit of time chatting with his staff before he opened it, and his heart broke. It was 1918, and the message read, I regret to inform you that your cablegram of the 14th of August addressed to 6874 Roberts is undeliverable, owing to the addressee being killed in action. In these impersonal and shattering words, Gary Roberts learned that his son was dead. Such is the detail in a new book by Dr. Peter Stanley, the director of the Centre for Historical Research at National Museum of Australia. In Men of Mon St. Quentin, he shows how war on the other side of the world impacted on the lives of ordinary Australians. Peter Stanley joins us on mornings. Hello, Peter. Hello, James. How did you get to have such detailed information? Well, by great good fortune uh, and a series of, of very far-sighted people, um, those, uh, the scrapbooks were created by Gary Roberts from the time his, his son uh, Frank was, was a baby in the 1880s. He kept these enormous scrapbooks. He, he scrapbooked his whole life. Uh, and, and those scrapbooks found their way to the State Library in, of, of Victoria. And I only found them because Gary had given a copy of some of the material to uh, Charles Bean, the official historian, in the 1920s. And they hadn't been used uh, in the sense I've used them since then. So um, I was just lucky, I guess. Um, for sure, which is nice. I guess all that um, delving around looking for things like this has paid off. You eventually lay your hands on it. But what, what struck you most? Oh, the, the, the poignancy of it, of course, is, is the, the fact that this, this man worked out his grief by sticking bits of paper and photographs and, and memoirs into uh, a, a huge scrapbook. I mean, you wouldn't believe the size of these scrapbooks. They're, they're easily 30 or 40 centimetres thick, and there's, there's 27 of them. Uh, and, and there's often each page, huge full-scale pages, often each page has three and four or five items. Um, and this man worked out his grief by, by sticking things in, writing annotations, writing to everybody he could find who yeah. knew Frank, collecting accounts and dwelling on them. And it's the most painful process for him, of course. Give me some of the examples that stood out for you. One of the things that, that he wanted to know, Gary Roberts didn't just want to know what happened. He wanted to know it in what he called in every particular, and he wanted to know the exact spot where he was buried. He didn't just want to know it was in a cemetery in France. He wanted to know exactly where it was. Yeah. He wanted to know exactly how Frank had died. And as Frank's surviving comrades came back from the Great War, Gary buttonholed them virtually on the dockside at Melbourne and, and asked them to write down what had happened on the weekend that, that Frank was killed. So you get these long accounts. Some of them are short, but some of them, they add up to about 10,000 words. And they all give, and the really sad thing is, is that about five of them give different versions of how Frank died. So ultimately, you, you think to yourself, you know, Gary never really got satisfaction because he could never really be sure which account was, was true. Did Frank die instantly? Was it a bullet or a bomb? Did he take a minute to die? Did he, did he, what did he actually say when, when he died? And you realize that this man was, was suffering a profound grief, and this was his only way of dealing with it. Why such a, a, a contrast of different opinion? Well, because battles are chaotic things. And, uh, and I guess also that the men who were writing for the father knew they were writing for the father. So you often oh, see right. them, they recall words that Frank said. I mean, they, they sense that he wanted to know what Frank said. So they, they recall some of the fairly banal things that Frank said in, in the last couple of days of his life. But they're conscious that, that this, is, this is the memory he'll have forevermore. And they want to make things easier for him. So I think, you know, one of them is really quite frank about the wound that Frank suffers. And others of them, I think, try and 
you know, water it down a bit. bit. Yeah, understandably. Yeah, of course. You, you originally set out to write a very diff- different military history book, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. I, um, I wanted to write a, a book about the battle, because that's what I'd done. I'd written several books about battles. But I, to be honest, I got a bit disillusioned with the idea of writing a book about a battle, because it wasn't the first one I'd done. And I thought, there must be a different way of doing this. And so I did two things. One is I put it aside for a year and didn't do anything. And then I thought, no, I've got to tackle this. And I went and looked at the papers of the historian Charles Bean, because I'd often found inspiration there before. And virtually the very first file I opened, in fact, the, ver- the, ver- the first file I opened was this, this series of accounts written by these men in the papers of the official historian who hadn't used them in his official history. And they'd sat there for the best part of 70-odd years, 80-odd years. And here they were ready to be, to be exploited. Other historians had written about the Roberts family's grief, uh, including Tanya Luckins, who I think was in Western Australia at the time. But nobody had really asked about the people on either side of Frank. And that's the difference, isn't it? It's that personal connection that you're making here, which makes it all so real. When we read military history, history books, it's almost as though we're detached from it. Yeah, that's right. I think that's one of the things that have disillusioned me about military history. Although I'd always written about people in battle, um, when you write a, about a big battle, and, and Mons and Quentin was a big battle, you get drawn into that uh, arrows on maps type of military history. And I, I didn't yeah. want to do that. I wanted to... And, uh, and eventually, by looking at these accounts, I realized that I could write about the big battle, but from the perspective of 12 men. Now, this platoon was very, very um, attenuated by, by yeah. casualties. There were only 12 of them when they went into the attack. And so you could do it on quite a micro level. But from the micro level, you could learn a lot about the way that war affected Australians and how they lived with the consequences of it for decades after. I'm talking with Dr. Peter Stanley, who has written a book called Man of Mons and Quentin. They're going to hopefully get a bit more about that battle that you set out to write about. Tell, tell, tell us a bit more about it, because I'm sure there are a lot of people who may have heard the term but don't know a lot about the battle itself. Yeah, it's quite famous. It's, it's one of the high points of the, the Australian Imperial Forces War in 1918. Essentially, uh, Monash directed the Australian Corps to attack and, and capture a, uh, a hill. It's not a very big hill, but from the summit of it, you can look out over the valley of the Somme and eastwards away from the Somme, which is exactly where the Germans were, were defending. So you needed to capture this hill in order to continue the Allied advance that eventually resulted in the, the, the end of the Great War. So he has to capture the hill. And the conventional view of the battle is, is that Monash deployed his brigades very skillfully, and, and it was all part of this plan. And, and even on the morning that the first attack was made, he sent a signal to his boss, the, the, command, the British commander of the, of the Fourth Army, Henry Rawlinson, and, and said, the Australian flag flying on the top of Mont St. Quentin. And it's always been represented as this great triumph of Australian arms. Well, when you start to look into it, though, you realize, and, and I'm not the first person to twig this, Gary Roberts twigged it in the early 1920s because he was poring over these accounts of this battle, and including my ashes. And, and at some point he writes, I don't think this is true. I think, I think this needs to be investigated more. And he starts to be suspicious of this grand narrative of military triumph. And he's quite right to be suspicious because actually it was, a bit, it was much more messy than that, as you wouldn't be surprised to hear. And then actually Monash takes his eye off the ball. And the battle's really won not in, in this first glorious attack, but over a couple of days of repeated attacks in which the subordinate commanders, the brigade commanders and the battalion commanders, and indeed the platoon commanders, take the initiative. And, and so the, the view that we've always had of Mont St. Quentin as this great triumph, I think needs to be qualified and, and made more, um, more understandable from the detail. Doesn't that make us question almost every military 
history book that has ever been written or some of the documents that have been gathered, it makes you think, well, maybe some of that isn't true either. Oh, absolutely. Well, I've made a career out of being que questioning military history. But exactly, because when you start to look at who was collecting the, the documents, I mean, the war correspondents were under very strict instructions to represent everything as a success. Which and is very much like today, isn't it? Well, exactly. Yeah. That's like nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. The, the staff officers aren't really worried about documenting the battle they just won. They're worried about planning the next one. And they're not, they're not really collecting it you know, for the purposes of, of um, disinterested study 90 years hence. They're doing it because they've got a battle to fight. So, and, of course, the generals have reputations to guard. And, and as I say, the, the, the triumphal view of Mons and Quentin comes directly from Monash's memoirs that were published in 1920 and which stayed the standard account until Charles Bean published his official history 20 years later, mm. by which time everyone had lost interest. And actually, Charles Bean's account is very detailed and not very intelligible. So naturally, a, a very partial account of the battle is the one that survives. Tell us a bit about those special people that, that obviously make up this battle, the, the, the men and their families in particular that you've discovered as you've looked back. Well, in one sense, James, they're not special people. I mean, the, I tried to understand who these men were and discovered all sorts of things about them uh, because Australia's military records are, are enormously detailed. And for these men, I was able to use their repatriation records too. So I'm very glad that for the very first time, someone's able to trace men not just on the day of battle, but for the rest of their lives. So I followed them through into their life as old men and, and each of them to their deaths. So, but, they're, but they're not special really in that they're, they're representative. They're very representative of the 324,000 men who, who volunteered for the first Australian Imperial Force. Um, but, but, they're, but they're all interesting individuals, and, and there's a whole range of them. I mean, Frank Roberts is a, a bank clerk who turns into an orchardist and enlists at the age of 27 when he's just married. So he never sees his daughter. His daughter's born when he, when he reaches the Western Front late in 1917, and he never, he never gets to see Nancy. Uh, other men's lives are completely ruined by the Great War. There's a fellow called Charlie Tognola, who's the only Catholic in the platoon, He's a woodcutter who's terribly wounded in the shoulder at Mont St. Quentin, but he goes back to being a woodcutter. And he's, one of the, he's the only man in the platoon who doesn't write his account because I grew to find out that he was illiterate. And you realize that his life was utterly destroyed by the Great War because he, he was still an unemployed, uh, sorry, still a, a self-employed woodcutter, illiterate. And that's the job he did even though he had this terrible, he lost his shoulder blade at Mont St. Quentin. So there's all sorts, and one, one of the men, in fact, migrated to Western Australia from Victoria at the end of the war, and um, he, he was a, a bookseller, became a, an artist and a bookseller, mm. and then late in life he goes blind, and so his file, which documents him going blind, is really sad because you realise that this man's uh, life is destroyed because the two things he really loves to do, to read and to paint, become impossible. It's, uh, it is amazing when, when you put... Uh, detail to the characters and as you say the jobs that they they held afterwards the lives that they they led afterwards it, what what does that sort of lead you down what sort of path does that lead you down now as you do more military books peter is this the route that sort of gives more away do you think yeah it certainly does look i think that the times when you could simply write about military history in terms of those arrows on maps is long gone yeah i but agree the times when yeah. you know books books about battles uh, if, if you write them from the perspective of generals these days, people think that you've missed something. And of course you have. What you've missed is the humanity. So there's a, and in Australia, 
um, we've 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 got these wonderful records. So there's no excuse for just doing it from the general's point of view. Um, but the other thing is is that if you if you write if you try and write them from the point of view of the people, and that means not just those who fought, but, but those their loved ones, because this book's also about the families of Mont Saint Quentin. In fact, I got enormous help and support from many of the descendants of, of these men. Um, if you do that, you get a, what I would regard as a truer picture of war. You can't simply regard it as just a matter of something on the battlefield because it's got consequences for decades afterwards. Yes. And you've got some lovely photographs in here as well. And, and again, that's what makes it so real when you see the people and the names by it. It's a bit like today when you pick up the newspaper and you, and you see who has uh, suffered or has died in Afghanistan or Iraq, when the names go to the pictures, it changes the whole complexion, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, and you, get, you get a sense of, of personality and, and relationships. That you, you, get, you get family groups too. So, yeah, and the pictures are really important. I mean, the, the most poignant picture in the book, I think, is one towards the end. When I went to see one of the families, the, the granddaughter of Frank Roberts, um, she had a a shoebox and in that shoebox was a little linen bag and in the linen bag were two baby shoes yeah and these baby shoes belonged to nancy the 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 daughter that frank never saw but he saw the shoe because ruby his wife sent one of the shoes to him and she kept one and she said when you come back we'll put them both together well of course poor frank never never came back and but the family still got the shoes so you know to them the, the life of, and, and of course, Jilda, the, the granddaughter, knew Ruby, the, the grandmother, and, and knew Nancy, the daughter. It's, it's not distant history for her. It's part of her family history. Yeah. And those shoes represent that terrible loss that that family suffered. Absolutely. It's an amazing, a poignant picture, such as a, a couple of shoes, which I'm just looking at right now. And it, and it does, it, it makes you very emotional when you see something like that. Absolutely, it does, yeah. No, no, that's, and that's what I think we need to remember, that, that mm. war isn't just a matter of, of, of flanks and decisions and, yes. and glory and that. Yes. It really affects people, and it affects people not just at the time. That's, that's, I think, one of the main lessons to come out of this book for me. Very interesting. Well, the book is uh, out. It's called Menace, Mons and Quentin. It's uh, Peter Stanley, the author. It's Between Victory and Death, published by Scribe. Good to talk to you, Peter. Thanks for your time. Likewise. Thanks, James. Thank you, Dr. Peter Stanley, with us on The Morning Show at 20 past 10.